Morning. So glad you guys are here today. I know there's a lot of stuff competing for your time in the summer, so I'm glad you chose to spend your morning with us. Hope you find your time enjoyable and meaningful while you're with us. Uh, What we like to do here is take a book of the Bible or a topic that seems relevant, spend a few weeks exploring what God has to say about those things. We're actually closing out a series this morning in the book of Acts. For the past nine weeks, we've been exploring the movement that happened within this book. We titled the series The Movement because, as I've said every single week, I believe that every movement begins with a moment. And so we've been looking at different moments, moments within this book of Acts, and I've been asking you for nine weeks now to analyze your life and, and look at your moments. And I've been challenging you to not waste those moments. How could this lead to movement? Maybe movement towards God in your life, maybe movement towards God for the people around you in your community and in the lives of those folks. And if you haven't been here, that's okay. You can find the messages online, but I can actually catch you up really quickly. Okay, a guy named Luke, he essentially starts a blog about his life. Starts journaling different details and different stories that encompass his life. And we have uh, two of those books recorded for us. He began this, this journaling and this blogging, so to speak, for a guy named Theophilus. And you can find his name there in the sequel of the books. First book, uh, ironically titled the book of Luke. Sequel is Acts, which we're in. In the last chapter in the book of Luke, chapter 24, Luke records for us a moment in the life of a guy named Jesus. Luke and a number of other eyewitnesses all assert that this Jesus is miraculously conceived by a virgin named Mary. They say that he is the Son of God who has come to take away the sin of the world. And so when Jesus dies, they're naturally kind of distraught. They're admittedly upset and confused. Look what Luke records for us. He says, on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. And they had found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. So the first moment, really the moment, leads to all the other movements we read about in Acts starts right here. Jesus, the Son of God, beats sin and death. He empowers His believers to live a new life and go into all the world and proclaim the good news that He takes away the sin of the world. Come on, somebody. That's what Luke tells us in Acts 1.8. Check it out. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You're going to get power. It actually happens. You have power. Acts chapter 2, verse 2. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And at that moment, when the Holy Spirit shows up, movements happen. All kinds of different movements, but what's really cool about that is the same Holy Spirit that rose Jesus from the dead in Acts 24, 
that begins this movement in Acts chapter 2 that fell on these men. That same Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit that literally takes up residence in your life when you trust Jesus as your Savior. You're literally no different from these men who saw thousands of people get saved, who rose men from the dead, who's like helped heal sick people. I guess let me say it this way. You could be part of a movement of God that's just as powerful as this one. Isn't that exciting? Some of you are less excited about it than others, but that's okay. You maybe just have a little bit of doubt. I'm going to help hopefully change that for you, so let me point something out to you. But first, let me ask you a question. We're in Kansas in Tornado Alley, as they call it. Anybody here seen a tornado? Been close to a tornado. Wow. Okay, more than I thought. I can remember uh, March the 13th, I believe, 1990. My mom and sister and I walked from our house at 312 Columbus. Don't ask me how I remember that. I just do. I don't know why. But we went to Food for Less because that's where poor people shopped. And, and we walked there because we were poor. And, and I remember it being summer. And when we walked there, it was really sunny. But as we came out, it was very eerily dark. And the wind was blowing and so we rushed home as fast as we could. That was the Heston tornado for, you, for those of you who remember that date. I don't know if you know this or not, but it was, it was actually as part of a series of tornadoes from March 11 to March 13, over 64 tornadoes across the states of Iowa, Nebraska, Missouri, Kansas, Oklahoma, Texas, and Arkansas. Pretty crazy. But we weren't necessarily close enough to feel the violence of that tornado, although we could see about it uh, on the news and everything like that. And everybody always said when they were uh, describing the events of this tornado, those that, that lived through it, they said, man, it was like a freight train coming for our house. The wind was so powerful. And here's why I bring that up. Because the mighty rushing wind that Luke records for us in Acts chapter 2, that's what he's talking about. The tornado of God's Holy Spirit. It's about to pull these men together, and then it's about to blow them out across the world. And that's exactly what happens for the rest of the book of Acts. From chapter 2 to chapter 28, we see God's Spirit move all over the globe. We saw a moment that led to a movement. Now, what's this have to do with you? Well, quite frankly, if you're a believer in Christ, you have been called to this same movement. And I want to give you some practical ways that you can do that. I believe today could be the moment that starts movement in your life. But first, let's finish the book of Acts. If you were here last week, you know we left our boy Paul in Acts chapter 19. He was in a town called Ephesus. In Acts chapter 20, Paul leaves Ephesus. He goes to Jerusalem to observe the Passover. It's a Jewish uh, holiday. It's been celebrated for literally thousands of years. But while he's there, he's got some Jewish authorities that recognize him. They tell the Romans that he's come there to start a political revolt. That, of course, is a lie. When the Romans question Paul, they realize it's a lie, but they can't figure out what to do with him. So they send him to a regional governor, a guy named Felix. Felix, too, listens to Paul. He understands that the Jews have no legal case on which to try Paul, so he has enough integrity not to turn him over to them, but he doesn't have enough integrity to let him go. 
So he puts him in prison for two years. He wants him to pay for his freedom, but Paul can't afford to pay for his freedom. So he languishes in prison for two years. Sidebar. Imagine how hard that would be. It's one thing to be outright persecuted for your faith. It's something entirely different to just be forgotten about for two years. What I believe is some of you are here this morning, you kind of feel that way. You're not in prison, but you feel like you've been maybe forgotten. We can't feel too bad for our boy Paul because he ends up writing part of the New Testament while he's in prison. And so here's my encouragement to you. Start recording, journaling your feelings. You have no idea what God's going to do with those things. But back to the sermon. Eventually, Felix is succeeded as governor by a guy named Festus. Festus is literally on the job for three days when the Jews come to him and ask to have Paul executed. Festus naturally wonders, why should we execute him? So he calls Paul in to stand before him and hear what he has to say. Now, instead of making another defense for a different governor, Paul instead goes, well, I appeal to Caesar. This is an old legal precedent where you could appeal directly to Caesar. It's like us going to the Supreme Court these days. He would hear your case, but you had to abide by what Caesar said no matter what. Remember, Caesars are not particularly known for their epitome of fairness or even mental stability. At this time, it's a a guy named Nero. You might recognize him because he burned down Rome. So again, not super you know, with it as far as that goes. But Paul's been sitting in prison for two years. His ultimate goal has always been to get to the gospel to Rome. So I imagine he thinks, well, here's a way I can guarantee to get the gospel to Rome. I'm going to appeal to Caesar. Before they ship Paul off to Caesar, another ruler in the region, a guy named King Herod of Agrippa, comes to visit Festus. He says, I hear you got Paul. He says, yeah. Agrippa says, I want to talk to him. So check it out. Acts twenty five twenty two. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Then tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. Now, before we go any further, can we just agree that Festus is like the worst name ever? Okay. I mean, I like to imagine like uh, a cousin Fester. Is that Uncle Fester from the Adams family? You know, like all you Christopher Lloyd looking dude. That's what I imagine when I read Festus all hunched over. Nonetheless, Fester puts on a big to-do, a Festivus for the rest of us. A little Seinfeld for you. Never mind. And the centerpiece of this party is Paul defending himself because Agrippa wants to know, why do all the Jews hate this guy? Why, do, why does everybody want to kill him? Why is he in prison? He could probably be free. Check it out. Acts twenty six thirty. Then the king rose, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with him. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And King Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Now, time out. Do you see what's happening here? King Agrippa's like, what's this dude's deal? He could have been set free. He just couldn't fathom why Paul would want to live like this. And here's the big idea. Paul's manner of life provoked a question. That's a big deal because I think God, through Luke, is reminding us this morning that our lives should provoke a question. Now, I realize we're not in the same circumstances as Paul. But people should be able to look at us and say, I don't get why you live like you do. 
I don't understand why you're so generous. Why do you have such hope in the midst of pain? Why are you so patient and forgiving? In fact, Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, said it this way, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Peter is supposing that your life provokes a question. He believes, and I concur, that people will be so intrigued by the way you live that they'll ask, why do you do what you do? Now, you may be wondering, okay, but how do we do that, pastor? I I get it. I buy what you're selling. I, I think my life should provoke a question, but how do I live in such a way that it would provoke a question? I thought of a few ways. You might want to jot these down if you're taking notes. What are some moments that could lead to movements because you are living a provoking life, number one, in how you do your work? You want people to be provoked by your life, ask you a question, then Paul says you should work with such excellence and integrity. Even when no one is looking, that people will say, I can tell you work for a different boss than money. Colossians 3.23, watch this. Whatever you do, whatever you do, work heartily, powerfully, as for the Lord and not for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. The implication is in how you work, you are serving the Lord Christ. You want people to wonder what makes you different? Stop being lazy. When you're at work, work. People will be so mesmerized by that, they'll ask you what you're doing different. Because listen to this, Forbes magazine put out an article not too long ago that showed 89% of people waste at minimum one hour a day at work. That's a lot of people, like face boxing and gramming and whatever else they're doing at work for an hour. I mean, I don't even know what you do to watching dumb cat videos, something on the YouTubes, but 89% of people, if there's 89% of the people around you who are not working, it's going to cause them to notice the fact that you're working and it's going to provoke them to ask a question. Hey, why do you work? Because I work for the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't work for that bum that's my boss. This is a guy that I'm serving. I'm going to work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. How do you live provoking life? You work hard. Here's number two. And how you handle disappointment, persecution, or pain. You want people to notice you and your life and ultimately Jesus because of your life and how you handle disappointment, persecution, or pain. I've said this a number of times during the series, but it's in your pain and disappointment that you best get to put on the gospel on display. Anybody can be happy when things are going well, but it's in times of trial and pain. And if you can have joy in those moments when things are not going well, You can show the world that you've got a foundation that other people don't have. Once heard a guy explain the difference between happiness and joy like this. Happiness comes from the same root word as happenings. So happiness is when you want, when what you want to happen happens. That's happiness. That's when you're happy. Joy, though, is not dependent on your happenings. In the midst of very bad happenings, you can still have joy. What's the difference? The difference is a choice. 
You get to choose joy because it's not dependent on your circumstances. It's completely about your outlook on life. Think about our boy Paul. Literally nothing could be done to rob him of his joy. You put him in prison, torture him. He's going to convert all the guards and the other prisoners while he's there. You take away his money, his resources, everything like that. He says, well, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So, Paul, I'm going to kill you. Cut off your head. You know, I don't count this life worthy of, you know, the gospel to be prepared in the future that is coming for me in heaven. Like, come on, guy. Like, what can we do to, to rob this man of his joy? And there's literally nothing you could do. So let me ask you, do you know where your joy comes from? Is it circumstances? Is it happenings? Or is it something that stands outside of those times? If it's any sort of situational circumstance, you're looking in the wrong place. Maybe this will help you. Romans 15, 13, Paul writes, May the God of hope, man, I love that, fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in Him. You might want to circle, star, underline, highlight that. So that you may overflow with the hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Where does your joy come from? It comes from you trusting in God. As you trust in God, God's going to fill you with hope and joy. So my life will provoke a question by the joy that comes out of me. How else? Number three, in how you handle your money. When people start asking you why you live differently, then handle your money the right way. What do you do? What you do with your money should provoke questions from people. Right now, though, the vast majority of Christians don't live any differently from the rest of the world. Do you know the average person in a church like ours gives 2.4% of their income to the church? Yet, follow me here, the average American gives 2% of their income to charities. We're living the same way. Doesn't provoke a question. Nobody's going to be like, man, you give like 0.4% more money than me. That's crazy. It's like four more dollars. How come you're living so much more generously than I live? Nobody's ever going to ask that. And as it stands now, most people assume that Christians are not folks who are or generous. They're just people who are moderately more moral, not people who live for an entirely different kingdom. Yet our generosity is supposed to beg the question, not why are you a little bit more moral than me, but rather it should invoke the question that there must be something in your life, an invisible kingdom I can't see that you're investing in. Because you're living way differently than I am. I heard something that maybe will help you. It helped me. I hope it helps you. But Christians who do what God tells them to do with their money will always live three steps behind any of their peers who make the same amount of money. Here's how that happens. Number one, because you won't go into unsecured debt. You're not going to have credit cards. You're not going to have loans. You're not going to have all kinds of other silly things that you can't pay for. When those folks are out buying the new car and charging it up and financing it and everything around, you're going to drive around your old beater and people are going to be like, dude, you make the same amount of money as I make. Why don't you get yourself a new car? And you're going to get a chance to share the gospel. The other way you'll live behind is because you're going to give a tithe and offering. It's a both and. The Bible talks about your tithe being 10% to your local church and an offering being anything else above and beyond that. Can't tell you how many times I've had conversations with people that starts with, well, as part of my tithe, I do X, Y, and Z. And in order for us to be theologically 
correct, that can't be true because a tithe is 10%. And if you want to do all those other things, which are great things, and you should be doing those things, the Bible calls that an offering. The two are very different. So you're going to be a step behind your peers because you're going to not only tithe, but you're also going to give away an offering. Here's the last way you're going to be behind somebody who makes the same amount as you because you'll save. You're going to save money. Do you know right now the over 90% of Americans, if they had something tragic happen, they needed to come up with $1,000, they couldn't do it because they don't have $1,000 saved anywhere. That's a travesty. Tell people all the time in premarital counseling, you should give 10, save 10, live on 80. And if you can't do that, you're living outside your means. The Bible would call that borderline sinful. I think I got a pretty strong biblical case for that. So you need to give 10, save 10, live on 80. You're always going to be a step behind your peers, at least three steps. What's it going to do, though? It's going to provoke a question. People are going to be like, you live differently than we live. Why is that? And you get a chance to start a movement in somebody else's life. How else can you provoke some questions with how you live? Number four, and how you handle your relationships. Not just about money. It's also about your relationships. The way you treat your spouse how you talk to your kids, how you treat your friends, how you treat your boss, your peers, your coaches, your teachers, all of those things. Let's start with the ladies. Ladies first, okay? Proverbs twenty-seven, fifteen: An endless dripping on a rainy day and a nagging wife or alike. Man. Don't worry, ladies, I'll get to the, the men, okay? So we'll, we'll have a chance to go there. But did you realize that the Bible says it's better for your husband to be arrested and put in Guantanamo and waterboarded for the rest of his life than it is to live with a nagging wife? It's the Bible, all right? I mean, I didn't, I'm not making that up. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. But I want to remind you that your call by God is to be a helpmate, in other words, your husband shouldn't believe that because you are by his side, anything is possible. You're encouraging him. Like when like people see you in public, they should think, man, she really loves that guy. When people see you, they should think that, that you are only about him. And when they hear you speak, they should think, man, she didn't say one hurtful thing to that guy. She's encouraging him and blessing him, and I'm not giving your guys a pass. Believe me, I'm going to get to them. I'm about to tell them how big of a moron they're being. But what you've got to hear me say is even if he's a total slob, you should be speaking life into your husband. You should encourage him. You should become an expert in his strengths, however few those strengths are. You'd need to be an expert. It might be one. But when you're out with your friends, it's not a gossip session or a slam your husband session. You should not get caught up in those nonsense things. When they start going off on a tangent, like I don't, I don't know what that's like. Because if my husband is da 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 da, and you're an expert in strengths, go read Song of Solomon. It happens. The other princesses and ladies get together and they're bashing him. And the the guy in Song of Solomon and the, she says, I don't know about that guy because he's all of these things. She was an expert in his strengths, and you should be too. You want your life to provoke some questions from the outside world? Start living like that. Start being what the Bible has called you to be. Loving your husband. Men, guys, what are we doing here? Are you kidding me? couple things. First of all, get out of your mom's basement, okay? If you're living there, get out, okay? First Timothy 5.8, 
Anyone who does not provide for their relatives and especially for their own household has denied the faith is worse than an unbeliever. Translation, if you're not out there working hard for your family, you're worse than the devil. Now, I'm not saying that you've got to be the primary breadwinner, so don't hear me say that. In fact, when we got married, my wife made more money than I did. So I'm not saying that you've got to make more money than they did. That's not the issue. The issue is, are you working hard for your family or are you playing video games all day? Great article I saw one of you posted online about the danger of video game video games and pornography on our uh, men's generation, this generation of men, and how we're in danger of losing this generation to those false uh, gods that, that men have made it out to be. God has called you to work hard and to do things for Him. And if you're not, you're sinning. God has created you to be a worker. You might not like your job, but you might probably be misunderstanding your job. God probably didn't put you there to make as much money as you possibly could. He put you there to start a movement to change the world for His glory, not your benefit. Amen, somebody. Furthermore, how you treat your wife is a big deal. Ephesians 5, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And what? I heard women on that. (laughs) Where are my men at? What did... Jesus do? He gave himself up for her, the church. You need to be giving yourself up for your wife. Might I remind you, you did nothing to deserve him giving up his life for you. It wasn't because you were awesome. It was because how unawesome you were that he had to die for you. I'm not calling your wife not awesome, so don't put that on me. What I'm saying is her awesomeness doesn't predicate your willingness to give yourself up for her. Say, Pastor, what about me time? There ain't no more you time. You want me time? Get up early, before the sun, before everybody else gets up. That's your me time. You show me me time in the Bible. It ain't there. You work hard. You give yourself up for your spouse. You get your butt out of bed before anybody else gets up. Well, I'm a night person, Pastor. You ain't anymore. You're a go-to-bed-when-your-wife-goes-to-bed person now. That's your call on life. You're an open-the-door-for-her person. You're a hold-her-hand-in-public person. You're a take-her-out-on-dates person. Hey, you're a conversation-starting-and-carrying-on person. Come on, ladies, right? You want your husband to talk to you? I'm trying to help you. I'm preaching for you right now. Thank you. Man, this is a call placed on us by God. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm saying this is the hardest thing you're ever going to have to do. And it's the most God-glorifying thing you will ever do. Because it is not our culture right now to love your wife the way Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You want to live a provoking life where people are like, man, what's different about you? You love your family well. You work hard. And you do these things that God has commanded us to do. Men, get your stuff together. Stop being tools. Let's show people the love of Jesus by how we love our families. Last verse, Ephesians 6, 4. It says, Mothers and fathers, 
Do not provoke your children to anger by the way you treat them. Rather, bring them up with the discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. Let me say it this way. You're constantly teaching your kids something. May it be that you're teaching them the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Let's stop raising narcissistic, self-absorbed, I can't take care of myself. I don't know what's an appropriate Christian word in there. Ninnies, maybe, something, I don't know. Let's get these kids ready to serve the Lord, serve the world, and change our culture. We are one generation away from losing the church as we know it today. Because kids don't want any part of it. And it's our responsibility to bring them up in the training and discipline of the Lord. Last thing, you want your life to matter. You want to be able to share the gospel like God has called you to do. You want to provoke some questions in the people around you. And it happens, number five, in how you serve your church. We do four things with this church. We bring people into a saving relationship with Jesus. We build them up in that faith. We equip them for ministry. We send them out on a mission to their world to do the exact same thing. Now, if the first thing that we do is bring, then I want you to be bold in your bringing. I want you to be bold in your inviting. Take risks in your invitations. Invite that neighbor you never thought would come. Give God's Spirit a chance to work. Take some invite cards to work. Take them to the gym. Take them to the gas station. Put it in the pump. I don't care what you do. Go with us on the 4th of July. Serve this community. Get out in the community that you live in. Start praying for God to bring people to Himself. But you don't just organically wait for that to happen. As much as your life should provoke questions, you've got to be in relationship with people for them to ask you the question. You've got to be bold in your bringing. Now, you don't stop with the invite. And we as a church, we don't stop with the invite. We also build people here, which means you've got to get in a small group. I say this all the time. Life change happens in circles, not rows. Your life can't change for an hour on Sunday listening to some guy. It happens when you're doing real life together with other people where you can be open and transparent and encourage each other and be honest about your struggles. And, and you've got to be real in those moments. You've got to be part of a smaller group of believers so that you can be known. Some of you, you've been in a small group too long. You need to start hosting the group. Yes, continue the other group, but you've got to get out there and help other people. As we continue to grow, we need more small group leaders. We've got to host training coming up. I expect a number of you to be there. I'm going to start calling you by name saying, you need to be hosting a group. Lastly, though, some of you need to start contributing on a volunteer team. Now, if you've been here more than three months, I'm talking to you. If you haven't been here that long, keep trying it out, kicking the tires, do whatever you got to do. But if you've been here more than three months, it's time to get involved. You've been consuming our resources. Now it's time for you to start contributing resources back. Give you some two areas that you can do that in because it takes up the bulk of our volunteers our production team our children's ministry team there's something in your welcome insert about children's ministry already but if you like hearing anything the music microphone cameras lights any of that stuff it all looks pretty cool but it takes people to set it up and i promise you it's not rocket science 
My six-year-old son can set up a Nintendo. You can plug in a microphone. just requires you getting out of bed and getting here and helping set up. I assure you, God's going to reward that because he's called you into a life of service. As far as kids' ministry goes, we don't babysit children here. We, like Andy Stanley says, try to place an anchor in their heart that goes so deep that when they hit the insanity years, otherwise known as middle school and high school, they don't drift from that anchor. That's what we're trying to accomplish here. We're teaching them about Jesus and how to serve him all throughout their life. We're not just back there babysitting kids. Even little babies, we're praying over them when we change their diapers. We're praying that God does something in their life. That we'll provide the kindling as long as he'll ignite the fire. That's what we want for our kids. So get involved. Now, listen to me. What happens when you start living this provocative lifestyle and people start asking questions? You've got to get this. Acts chapter 17, we see a description of what happens. These men who have turned the world upside down. It's highlighted in my Bible because I want that. I want New Anthem to turn the world upside down. But I'm not New Anthem. We're New Anthem. I pray to God you want the world to be turned upside down. So wake up. Pray up. Sing up. Read up. Pay up. But don't you ever give up. Let up or shut up. Until everybody in your community has heard that Jesus is for them and loves them and is ready to save them and spend an eternity in heaven with them. Come on, somebody. Man, I pray that we can do this together. Can we wring out our lives for the sake of the gospel to see the world changed? I'm asking, can we do that? Pray that you feel that in your soul, that God wants you to be part of a movement, and it starts with a moment. And today could be that moment for you. If you'll just be willing to turn it over to God. Say, God, I give you my marriage, give you my job, give my kids. You take it. I want what you want. And I want to have this life that you've promised me full of hope and full of joy. That's what Jesus said. That's what's waiting for you. If you only live the life God's called you to live, a provoking life provokes questions from people. Let's pray towards that end. God, we love you. Thank you for giving us the time here to come together and worship you. We love you. We trust you. We believe that your son, Jesus, came to this earth to die for us. He lived a life that we could not live. And he died a death that was meant for us. And because of that, we're made new. Let this newness empower us because of the power of your Holy Spirit that you've promised us. Guys, pray that you ignite the fire in people's soul to start spreading this good news all around them, to have a hope, to choose joy, to begin loving their spouses well, to love their kids well, to love their jobs, to 
love their peers, to love their neighbors, to love their coaches, their teachers, their students. God, start putting a burden on our hearts and our souls. Start living differently apart from this world. God, don't let this be our home. Don't let us fall in love with the world so that we miss out on your kingdom. Give us power right now in Jesus' name. Everybody said, Amen.